Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to um, come before you this morning to open up our Bibles, um, to be taught by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we just ask for your Spirit's blessing upon this time. Just reminded of the scripture, Lord, that it says your ways are not my ways. Your, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And so, Lord, we just we come humbly before uh, your word this morning, confessing your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. And so, Lord, we want to be taught of you. We want to hear you speak to us. And, and so, Lord, we, just, uh, we, we pray for that spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might uh, know you better, that we might get a better picture of who Jesus is and just uh, grow in our understanding of the word and that our lives would be transformed this morning. Lord, I do pray for that, that, that we would be transformed from the inside out as we uh, go through this text. And so, God, we just give you this time, ask your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I need somewhere to put my coffee this morning, so I'm going to put it right there. Good. So Matthew chapter 25, it's been a while since we've been in Matthew already. Eh? It's, it's amazing how that happens. I go to India and Blake speaks and we have Brian, Brian here and uh, do something else one other week. And it's been a month since we've been um, in Matthew. And so it's good to come back here. Uh, we're going to try and wrap up Matthew like right for Easter. Actually, I was looking ahead and I'm like, wow, this is cool. We're just coming right into the whole passion story right, right with Easter. And we'll just try and... Um, follow that along. But we come back to Matthew chapter 25. We're, we're in the, the second half of a message that's called the Olivet Discourse that Jesus gave. It takes um, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 as we know. This was a teaching on the end times that Jesus gave to his disciples. Now, so let's just get our bearings again because it's important because we're, we're just continuing to build on where we've been in Matthew. But um, you recall that we ended up on the Mount of Olives. Jesus came out of the, the temple for the very last time. He said, your house is left to you desolate. He, he walked out with his disciples. They, they journeyed east and they made their way up uh, the Mount of Olives. And um, Mount, Mount is kind of a relative term. It's kind of like going up School Hill, maybe not quite. And they looked out across uh, the Kidron Valley to... Uh, the temple, and the disciples commented and asked Jesus some questions, and he told them about the future destruction of the temple, and it started this whole teaching of Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, as you know, we spent, th we spent three Sundays just on Matthew chapter 24. It was a ton of fun. It's, it was end times prophecy. Um, well, now as we move into Matthew chapter 25, we're going to look at end time parables that Jesus gave. So Matthew 24 was prophecy. Matthew chapter 25, I would call it parables. We, we know this, Jesus loved to use parables when he was teaching. He'd tell simple stories and the story would have a spiritual lesson tucked away inside of it. And so as we, as we come to Matthew chapter 25 in the second half of what Jesus is teaching, here's what I'd say about Matthew chapter 25. This is a chapter that is about application of everything that Jesus has just taught. All of the prophecy stuff. Now here comes the application. You know, we talk about end times. We talk about Bible prophecy, the last days. And it's like, it's kind of fun, isn't it? It's, it's amazing. Like I, I was, when I was away on the trip there, I, I was uh, FaceTiming with Lisa and she said, oh, we had, uh, you were away from home group. Nate did such a good, welcome home, Nate. She said, Nate did such a good job. Um, leading the group and man, they're like into it. They're asking for a Bible prophecy weekend or something like that. And so we were, you know, just yapping about it. Like it's exciting to consider the nearness of Christ's return. When we look around the world and consider all these things, but here's what I would say about that. The, the end goal of Bible prophecy is not just excitement. It's like, wow, we're really excited. And then, you know, it drops off. What we need is application for everyday life. And many times, you know, when you talk about Bible prophecy, when you consider some of the different theological camps that Christians fall into on different areas regarding what they believe of the scripture teaches in regards to end times and how those things are going to play out. You know, I would comment, I, I think our church has really good theology in regards to those things. And we can straighten you out later. But, uh... But, but it's been said this, look, it's been said this, that many times Christian ar Christians argue about end times and they argue about the second coming of Christ and they forget that there's many people that never heard about Jesus' first coming. 
And that's a really important thing to remember. And you guys know me. I, I love talking end time stuff. Lots of Christians do. Uh, we, we need to have a conviction. That's one of the things that we saw in Matthew chapter 24, a conviction about Christ's return for his church. But here's the thing. When, when we learn what Jesus uh, taught about the, the end of days in Matthew 24, the end goal, the application is not that we would become speculators. You know what a speculator is? It's a person who forms theory or conjecture about a, about a subject without firm evidence. So listen to this. The goal of end times teaching is, that, is, is not that we would speculate. And I think that's the message of Matthew chapter 25 here. The goal of Jesus' message is always that this, that we should be transformed by his word. Not speculation, but transformation. Transformation. And so when Jesus teaches about end times and he, he gives all this fun stuff that we've gone through in Matthew chapter 24, he closes with Matthew chapter 25, these parables. And it's a, it's a teaching that's, it's a practical exhortation. Jesus isn't, gonna, is, isn't looking to turn us into, you know, people who are scanning uh, the world news and speculating how end times are going to play out. And some of that's okay. You, you know me. Like I check the news every day and I'm, I'm watching and seeing different things. It's all right to read websites and to follow different ministries that are devoted to, you know, figuring out these things. But what we want is transformation in our lives. Not just to be speculators about the future. And so Jesus is concerned about what his disciples will actually do with the teaching that he's just given them. And he's, as he's told all these things about the nation of Israel and how the, the tribulation is going to play out and the coming of the Antichrist and all of these things. But what he's looking for is transformation in the hearts of his disciples. And that's what this chapter to me is all about. The Holy Spirit is going to urge us to actually do something with what we've learned from Matthew chapter 24. So let's check it out. I'm going to read the, <coughs> I'm going to read the, whole, uh, the whole parable here. Of the ten virgins to start. It says this in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask, flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed... They all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going out to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went with him into the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, this great parable about a wedding that's coming, a, a bridegroom that's coming for his bride and these guests that are coming along, the bridegrooms, in, in Jesus' day, uh, sorry, the bridesmaids, in Jesus' day, a wedding practice was, you know, there were some similarities to, to how we celebrate our weddings, but it, there was quite a few differences. There were actually three stages to a, a Jewish wedding in that day, and the first one was engagement. There would be a formal agreement made between the two parties that were going to get married and, the, and their families. The fathers would do this. And then there was a betrothal. We know that in a Jewish wedding. The, the ceremony where they entered into this period of time where they were essentially married, but they didn't consummate the marriage and they didn't live under the same roof. But their promises were made. And then the time of the marriage would come. And what would happen approximately a year after the betrothal was that the bridegroom would come at an unexpected uh, hour for his bride and there would be a wedding ceremony. Uh, when the bridegroom came, the bridesmaids who were to attend the bride would scramble and they'd go out to meet the bridegroom and they'd have these lamps that were lit. There would be a celebration and they would join the whole procession. 
uh, with the bride and the bridegroom. And I was thinking about our wedding, almost 19 years ago we're coming up on. And uh, back at, my wife pretty much looks the same. Uh, when you look at our wedding photos, I've changed a little bit. There's a little less hair. It's a little more, you know, gray, all these sorts of things. But, you know, when I was thinking back about our wedding, as I was studying this text, Lisa had, she had three bridesmaids at our wedding. Um, and I had three groomsmen. We had a great time. But in this parable, we read about this, that Jesus in the parable says that there were 10 bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom and to join the whole procession. Now, 10 is an important biblical number. Remember how many commandments there are? 10 commandments, okay? The, the number 10 biblically is a number of completion. And so it's an interesting, it was a common number for a wedding party in those days. So it's a number that, that pictures completion. This is a completion. There's going to be a, a wedding ceremony. And the bridegroom could show up at any time. And when he arrived at the house for his bride, the word would spread that the time had come for the wedding and that the ceremony was going to happen and the community would gather, the bridesmaids would come, the wedding party would come, and it, and it would be a wonderful time of celebration. And so we, Jesus just starts to paint this picture of this parable and we, we get the, the picture of what he's saying. Who's the bridegroom? It's Jesus, right? He's the bridegroom. And so this is all about, this, this parable is all about the importance of being ready for when he comes. And Jesus tells us about the wedding party. He says that there was 10 bridesmaids. Five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. The five that were foolish were bridesmaids that appeared to be ready. They had the lamp in their hand. But they weren't really ready because they didn't have enough oil to keep their lamps lit should the bridegroom come. The wise, on the other hand, had, had their lamp in their hands, ready to go, and Jesus said they had a flask of oil to supply the lamp with fresh oil to keep it lit should the bridegroom be delayed in his coming. The lamps are a cool picture. They're a neat picture. We know what the, the, uh, the word of God is described as a lamp unto my feet, right? A lamp unto my feet. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. That's what the psalmist did. He compared the word of God to a lamp, to like a torch, to like a flashlight that lights your step in the midst of darkness. God's word shines light so that in darkness we can put our foot down in life and we can navigate and find our way around. That's the word of God. The five foolish virgins were unprepared, it says, because they lacked oil to keep their lamps lit. In many places in the scripture, Oil is a symbolic picture of the Holy Spirit. It's a neat picture in, in this parable from Jesus. Oil representing the Holy Spirit. Well, many times in, in the Bible accounts, kings, you know, priests, prophets, the sick were anointed with oil. The New Testament instructs us as the church to lay hands and to anoint those that are, are sick with oil and they'll be healed. When you think about oil, there's nothing magical about oil, but the oil in scripture, the anointing oil that we use as a, as a, as a church, New Testament church, the oil is symbolic of the working of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. So these virgins didn't have enough oil. You know, think about oil for a minute, the properties of oil, the functions of oil in life. It lubricates, right? You just tried driving your car for a while without some oil in the engine. Anybody ever done that before? I had a cousin. She did that first car, you know. I thought she was all cool, a couple years older than me. You know, a little Capri she had. Killed the engine. Said, I just, oh, I just, I don't know. The light came on. I kept going. And, uh, you know, oil, oil lubricates all of the moving parts. You think about the church. The church is not that different from an engine in many ways. There's many moving parts and we need the Holy Spirit to just keep things lubricated and to keep things uh, so that they don't seize up. Oil heals. You think about oil, it, it has some healing properties to it. Uh, if you're into essential oils, uh, then you know that. You can give us the whole spiel on how healing essential oils are. Sorry, my nose is runny. You got to put up with that today. So the Holy Spirit, like oil, brings healing and restoration. Oil lights, like in this parable, oil can be, can, can be used to light a flame. 
That's a great picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. He lights us on fire so that we shine brightly for Jesus. Oil warms in that sense too. You know, when it's, when it's used to light, to light a flame, the results are warmth. The results are comfort. And where the Spirit of God is, there's a sense of warmth and comfort. Isn't that true? You know, I, I might even say maybe you're new here this morning and you think, what is it about these people? You know, I sense a warmth. I sense love with these folks. I'm comfortable. Well, I would tell you this. What you are sensing is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not us, people. I mean, there's nothing special about us. It's the presence of God and his people. When you come in to the body of Christ and you sense warmth and you sense comfort. How about this about oil? Oil revitalizes. You ever gone to Calvin for a massage? If you haven't, I would recommend it. <laughs> hey, Calvin. Good, good plug, eh, buddy? You know, when Calvin works you, like he will, he gets in there and he finds those knots and he uses a, a massage oil, right? Rubs out the tension, rubs out the stress. And pain is, re well, it's relieved later. At the time, it's quite painful <laughs> when he's got you on the table. But you know what happens? You go for the massage, the muscles relax, the stress begins to, to pass, and you find a fresh strength. You get up off the table, and you're like, oh, I feel revitalized, man. I'm like, I'm ready, I'm ready to rock. And the work of the Holy Spirit is the same. The greatest, the greatest stress and tension reliever is the presence of God. Oil also perfumes. You know, I, I, I love the smell of my wife's perfume, like any husband. It's, it's pleasing to my senses. And of course, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is like oil in that sense that he perfumes our lives with the aroma of Christ. Oil can even be used as a polish to shine up metal. And the Holy Spirit does that work. He, he wipes away our grime and he smooths, smooths off the rough edges. And so you think about uh, these five virgins, these foolish virgins who did not bring enough oil with them to keep their lamps lit. How are they going to keep the lamps lit without oil? And so the lamp and the oil really is, it's a great, it's a great picture of our lives. The lamp is the outward character of my life. The light that I shine. It's what everyone sees. It's the character that everyone observes and watches. The oil is the inward power that feeds that flame. It's the deep inward source that nourishes the wick so that the flame can keep lit and shines brightly and not be snuffed out. Remember Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, you are the light of the world. You are, you are the light of the world. God's word is a, a lamp that guides our path and the Holy Spirit is the source of all real outward holiness. He's, he's the power that is in our lives. And he, the Holy Spirit, causes our lives to shine, our light to shine. Now check out verse 5 in particular. It says this. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and swept. Slept. Swept. They slept. It's worth noting, right, that, that all of the virgins, all ten, the five wise and the five foolish became drowsy and they slept because the bridegroom was so long in his coming. You know, think about that. We, we've, been, we've been waiting for a while for Jesus to come. Centuries, millennia. And when waiting and waiting and waiting, it's natural. Like, I mean, have you ever gone with your family somewhere? How about... BC Ferries, you wait and you wait and you wait. And you know what happens while you're sitting in that car. You think, well, maybe I'll just tip the seat back a little bit. Back it goes. The next thing you know, the line's going around you as people are loading onto the ferry, right? It's natural for drowsiness and for sleep to come. And I think it's really important in this parable to see this because it packs a powerful lesson for us, especially when we talk about waiting for Jesus to come, waiting for the bridegroom. See, what this tells us about the bridegroom is this, is that, that he is patient with our weakness or that Jesus is merciful in his allowance for us to be weak. That's pretty awesome about Jesus, isn't it? Our king allows for weakness. You know, that's the beauty of following Jesus, that you're allowed to be weak. And I'm not talking about weakness as an excuse for like, living an ungodly life, giving your life over to sin. Someone asks, you know, 
Why, do you, why did you sin against the Lord? Like, oh, I'm just weak. No, no, I'm not talking about weakness as an, as an excuse. That doesn't cut it in the kingdom of God. What I'm talking about is a weakness that is natural to all who are waiting. And you're waiting. And you're waiting. It's just natural that at times drowsiness will come. Sleep will come. And the, the beauty about that sleep is this, is that it's not a deep sleep. As we see, it's a sleep that it's easy to be awoken from. The voice, you hear a voice, the call of the bridegroom. And you, you wake up, you're easily woken. And, it, you know, you just think about it. I mean, we know this. It's hard to live your life on the tiptoe of expectation in terms of the kingdom of God. You know, you go to the conference, mountaintop, life in the valley. It's like the Christian life is like that, isn't it? It's just highs and there's lows. And the Lord allows that. He allows for that weakness. What matters is, is that when the midnight call does come, that you are prepared, that you have your lamp and that you have your flask of oil. And in the parable, the midnight call came. All 10 of these virgins woke up. The foolish ones woke up, but they didn't have enough oil to keep their lamps lit. So they, they requested to use some of the oil of those who were prepared for this. But the wise virgin said, there isn't enough both for you and for us. I don't have enough for you and you don't have enough uh, for, I, I don't have enough for you so as to keep my lamp lit. And so this is, the, this is the reality in the Christian life. It's this, is that I don't have enough for you and you don't have enough for me. Each of us needs to learn to go to the source. Each of us needs to go to the source for oil. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says this, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that's Paul's instruction to us. As the church. You know I think about this answer from. Uh, these five. That were wise. They weren't being selfish. Just the reality was. They didn't have enough to give away. They only had enough for themselves. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. There, there is a source. Where there is oil enough for everyone. But what I have is not enough for you. And what you have is not enough for me. Each individual person has to go to the source themselves. And a key to being ready for the, the coming of Jesus Christ is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be full of the Holy Spirit. That really means this. Be ready beforehand. Be ready beforehand. When the bridegroom comes, there will not be time to go back to the source and say, I need the oil. He's coming. There won't be time. You have to be prepared Beforehand, And so the lesson is really clear and it's really simple as you read this, this parable. We can only get the new life of the spirit which will make our lives a light for Jesus from the Holy Spirit. And here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of this parable. You can have it right now. You, you don't have to wait till another day. You don't have to wait till you hear the voice. You can have the oil of his presence today. Maybe today, think, man, I'm just feeling, I'm feeling drowsy spiritually. I'm feeling, Lord, like my life is asleep. Like I'm asleep spiritually. Well, this morning, we have the opportunity, every day, we have the opportunity to go back to the source and be refreshed by the oil of his presence. His word tells us his mercies are new every morning. Every morning. Just back to that source. Lord, I, I need your presence. See, that's the beauty of the Christian life. We can have it right now. We can have that experience right now. But I think in this, there's, there's also a warning. And here's the warning. You can have it right now, but then you won't be able to get it if you don't have it. Now, but not then. Now, but not then. When, when the call comes, it will be too late. And so you have to hear the still, small voice of, of God as he calls you. The Holy Spirit draws you. He wants to fill your life today. There is mercy for you today. As the scripture says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. His mercies are new every morning. And you know, as I read this parable, that's the tragedy. That right there is the tragedy. That The tragedy is that five of these bridemaids... They had outward religiousness, but they had an inner emptiness. 
All the trappings of religion. You know, they had just enough to keep the lamp lit for a little while. Just, just enough to shine for a little bit, but not enough to actually keep it going. They let life kind of like ebb like the tide. Without securing the one thing that mattered. The one thing that mattered was that they had inner oil. Inner oil. The presence of God's spirit. The Holy Spirit and his indwelling power. There's nothing else that keeps the, the lamp lit. But his presence. There's nothing else that will secure your future. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ is just absolutely necessary for our lives. <clears throat> five taken, five left behind we read about. And the point of the parable is really simple. I would say it's this. Be ready. Be ready because the price for failing is too high. Uh, you know, I think as, as, as we read this and we say, oh, it's telling me, be ready. It's telling me, be ready. Well, then the next question is, well, what is readiness? What does that look like? And I think the next parable gives us insight into that. Let's check it out. Verse 14. I'm going to cough for a minute. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and he entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground, and he hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, uh, and he also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him saying, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has been, for to everyone who has been, sorry, for to everyone who has will be given more and he who has an abundance and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus tells the second parable to the disciples. And he gives uh, them instruction. He tells them a story about a master who goes away and he's leaving on a long journey and he supplies some of his servants with talents. Now a talent is not, it's not ability as in like a talent show that we, we think about. It was a monetary unit. It was money. He put into their hands uh, certain resources. And in fact, probably in the footnote of your Bible, it'll tell you that a talent was the equivalent of about 20 years wages. And so this is a significant sum. Whether you're the guy that got one or you're the guy that got five, it's a significant sum that the master puts in, in, into their hands. And in the application of this parable, I think I would say this though, even though we'd say the talents don't, you know, they're not talents in the story, that's a monetary unit. I think in, in terms of the application, it's easy to see that these talents represent resources in our life. You know, time, Money, abilities, sometimes people say time, treasure, talent. And so according to the ability of the servant, the master puts certain gifts in their hands. 
Now the first two servants went about putting the master's money to work for him. He who was given five, Jesus says he went out and he made five more. He who was given two went out and earned and he made two more. They got to work promptly. They persevered while the master was gone, even though he was gone for a long time. They kept about the business of his little empire kingdom and they were ready to give an account when the master came back. The third guy we read about, though, the one who was just given one talent, did almost, you know, I don't know, nothing short of nothing. He took it. He buried it in the ground. He made sure that he didn't lose that which the master had, had given him, but he did nothing to put it to work. Now, check out verse 19. It says this. Now, after a long time, after a long time, the master of those servants came and he settled accounts with them. That, that phrase, after a, a long time, it carries like centuries in its wake, right? The master's put talents in the hands of his church, Jesus. Not sure how much more time there's left before he comes, but I don't think there's much time. And the master, so when the master comes to, to settle up, the one who had five talents gave him five more, 10 total. The one who had been given two talents gave him two talents more, four total. And the master gives to these two faithful servants really some generous praise. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's, that's like the hope of every Christian right there to receive that praise from King Jesus when we enter into his presence. Well done, good and faithful servant. These were excellent servants. They had handled the master's goods. And the master says this to them. He says, you have been faithful over little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's worth noting that the first two servants received the same reward. The exact same thing. You know, one was given more than double the talents and he produced more than double for the master with what he had been given. But the reward that they both received was the same thing. See, in the kingdom of God, it's not about quality. It's about quantity. That's, that's a thing that we should recognize. What does our master reward? Is it quantity? No, it's quality. It's the quality of what we do. It's the faithfulness of what we do with what he has given us. Jesus rewards the quality of his work. The, uh, the quality of our work, sorry. Whatever the quantity from the work was, the reward was not because of the quantity. It was the reward was given because the servant was faithful to his master. And so whether, you know, whether you have, I, I think in terms of this parable and just applying it to our own lives, whether, whether you would look at your life and say, well, I've been given lots for the kingdom or I've been given little for the kingdom. That's not, that, that's a relative discussion in terms of Jesus' mind. In his thinking, it's this. Have you been faithful to what I've given you? And I think there's a warning in this story because, because lots of people feel like, well, I don't know. What's my gift, man? I mean, what can I do for the kingdom? I mean, what's God given me? I don't have like hardly anything. And it's interesting. Who was the one who was not faithful? The one who felt that he had little. The one who felt that he had little. And I think there's, there's lots of people in the church who say, well, I don't know. Just what I have is little. And, and there's a warning here to us that it's when we feel like we have little, that it's very easy to be unfaithful. Even your little is 20 years worth of salary. Even your little is something incredible that the master has placed in your hand if you think it's middle, little. And, and I would encourage you, be, be faithful to what God has given you. You don't know what to put in your hands. Be faithful to what he's given you, whether little or much. That's relative in terms of this story. One talent, like I said, is 20 years wages. And reward was based on good and faithful service. Not on how much quantity was produced. And so when the master comes, he, he finds these first two. They've produced for him. These, God's, it's, he blesses it. Then the master comes to the third servant. And it says that this servant was unfaithful. And it's, it's worth noting the excuse his excuse, his excuse was his reason. He, he reasoned in his mind. He thought certain things about the master, it says. He, he took the power of his mind and he thought about 
the master and he thought about the gift that the master had put in his hand to work until he came again. And, and he thought this, the master's harsh. You know, the master gave him a gift and a responsibility and his gift and responsibility was this, to look after it, to be faithful to it. And the gift was hardly in his hand when he began to think things in his heart. Think things with his reason. He said, I, I knew you were a hard man. I knew you were a hard man, so I took it and I buried it. You know, I think that there are many people who are paralyzed because they believe God is a hard man. They're spiritually, like, spiritually paralyzed because they have decided in their heart, God is unjust. He's too hard. He's unfair. They view him as demanding rather as giving. And when you view God as, a, as demanding rather than as giving, it will actually produce a spiritual paralysis in your life. Because it's, it's like fear is barren. <laughs> Love is fruitful. You think about your life, you say, oh, I only got a little gift. You're such a hard master. Paralysis right there, man. If you want to produce for the kingdom, it's just be faithful to what God has given you and know that God will reward good and faithful service. You know, I'm reminded of the story of Saul. Saul, when he was slain with his sons, Jonathan, all his boys, they were all killed by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines took their bodies, and the scripture tells us it's at the end of 1 Samuel and, and at the start of 2 Samuel, that they took the, the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and the other brothers, and they hung them all in the, on the walls of the city of Bethshan. And the Bible recounts that there were, that there were righteous men in Jabesh. They were, they were men whose hearts were broken by what had happened to their king, and they were valiant, the scripture says. And so the Bible tells us that when they heard what had been done to Saul and, their, and his sons, they traveled all night. They packed up from their city, and they traveled all night to get to the city of Bethshan. And they came to that city. They took down the bodies of Saul and his boys, and they brought them back to Jabesh, and they gave them a proper, proper burial, and they treated them appropriately. When, when David heard that all of this had gone down, the Bible tells us that he blessed the men of Jabesh. And he wrote a, he wrote a song. It's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 1. A psalm that's a lament, a lament for Saul and Jonathan. And in his lament, David said something that's super fascinating and it has like effects on the earth till today. David said this in his lament. He actually cursed the mountains of Gilboa. You can go home and check it out. He said this, you mountains of Gilboa. Remember, these are the mountains where Saul and his sons were sl slain. He said, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there, for there the shed blood of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. David, in his psalm, cursed the mountains of Gilboa. And did you know that till today, the mountains of Gilboa are cursed? You go to the land of Israel, and it's like lush everywhere. And they go, see those mountains? Those are the mountains of Gilboa. Rock. Nothing growing on them. Let's see. No rain hits those mountains, man. It's like totally bizarre. It's like right in the middle of all this lush, fertile land. And those mountains are cursed because David cursed them. He cursed them. And they're barren even today. And see, the, the point, I guess, of the story is this, is that nothing grows out of curses. The servant cursed his master in his heart. He said, I knew you were harsh. And what was the result? His own life was barren and paralyzed and fruitless for the master. He paralyzed his ability to serve with what he had been given because the attitude of his heart bred fear in his life. Look at verse 25. He says, I was, I was afraid. I was, it sounds like Adam in the garden. I, we hid because we were afraid. Nothing grows on the mountains of curses. And it's real easy in our heart to say, God, you're unjust. You're harsh. 
I don't know what to do. You, I mean, you've given me so little. I don't know how to serve you in the kingdom. And we paralyze ourselves spiritually. Is God harsh? Well, what does the Bible tell us? John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he what? He gave. God so loved the world that he gave. And a heart that knows that God is a giver is a fertile place for the kingdom of God. A, a heart that knows that, that God is a giver will put to work whatever the master has put in its hand, in his hand, her hand, little or much, whatever it is, will put it to work. And this, this servant produced nothing. He, he simply, you know, preserved or persevered with what he had been given. And the master comes and he says this, you wicked and slothful servant. You, you didn't do what you were supposed to. And doing nothing is the mark of ruin in the parable. Doing nothing with what you've been given is the mark of ruin in the kingdom. And the result for him was loss and doom. Look at verse 29. For everyone who has been given will be given more. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus goes on. Let's read about the final judgment. Verse 31. When the son of, this isn't a parable now. Now he begins to teach again. When the son of man, we're going to look at this one really quick this morning. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. and You gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you, you sick or in prison and visit you? Verse 40. And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you, as you did not do, to, do it to the least of one of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Tremendous picture of Jesus judging the nations. Did you, did you note that? You could note there that Jesus refers to himself both as judge and king there. That's the only time in all of the gospels that Jesus calls himself king. Right out, flat out. No ifs, ends, or buts. Directly calls himself the king. And it's the one and only time in the, go the Gospels that he does that. And he calls himself the judge of the nations. And the principle of his, his judgments of the nations. I mean, it's not people groups. It's the nations are going to be brought. Individuals are going to be brought. And it's, they're going to be judged on the basis of what they did and they did not do. And I guess you might say this. I, I don't imagine they could have dreamed up the significance of their deeds, you know. Their deeds define them as sheep or goats. And those who were put to the right hand were surprised. And those who were put to the left hand were surprised. They both said this to him. When did we do these things? I mean, you say all these things. When did we do them? The sheep said that and the goat said that. 
And the king answered them and said, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Your, your deeds follow you. And then the king, the judge, gives a judgment over these sheep and these goats that's irrevocable. He said this, and, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And both were surprised by what happened to them. You know, when we think about the kingdom of God, uh, when the door's closed, the door's closed. That's what we read about in these parables. We read it in the, the, very, first, the very first parable, told us that. Lord, Lord, said, away from me, I don't know you. And here Jesus tells us about the irrevocable nature of his judgment, that, that these on his left will go away to eternal punishment, and those on his right, the righteous into eternal life. Spurgeon said this about that door. He said, when that door is shut, it will never be opened. There are some who dote and they dream about an opening of that door after death. For those who have died impenitent without repentance, they, they maybe dream about this, but he says this, but there is nothing in the scriptures to warrant any such expectation. Any larger hope than revealed in the word of God is a delusion and it's a snare. It's delusional to believe in something that the scriptures does not offer. That's what Spurgeon said. That it's delusional to believe in something that's contradicted by the word of God. The word of God never encourages anyone to wait. It's interesting. I mean, except for the coming of Jesus. That's the only thing we wait for. When we're talking about salvation, when we're, when we're talking about the presence of the, the spirit of God as we wait for that, the word of God declares to us, today's the day, man. Today's the day. Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. You know, when I think about this text and the teaching of Matthew 24 and 25 in these parables, it's telling us this. We cannot afford as followers of Jesus Christ to be indifferent about Jesus and to be indifferent about his return. We can't afford to be indifferent towards the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who's making us ready. He's the oil in the lamp making us ready for when Jesus does come. We can't afford to be indifferent towards the resources that God has put in our hands. Time, talent, treasure. Oh, I just buried it away. We, we, we can't afford to, to do that in the kingdom of God. We can't afford to be indifferent towards needy people around us. That's what this, Jesus said. So you did to the least of these, so you did to me. And we can't afford to be indifferent to those who are lost. Those who don't know Jesus and they don't know the message of the cross. I mean, when I think about this text, Matthew chapter 25, these parables, these parables and these things that Jesus said and the things that we discussed this morning, they are encouraging us to love the thought of his appearance. To put our hope in that. To wait for it. To look for it. To long for it and to prepare for it. To look for his appearing and to do this. To labor faithfully with whatever he's put in our hands until that day comes. When I think about the application of this text, I'm going to give you three words. Here they are. Watch, work, witness. Watch. Keep your lamp full. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Go to the source of his presence and get filled up. Don't be caught off guard. Work. Work, man. Put, get, to, get busy for the kingdom of God. Find something somewhere. Your time, your treasure, your talent. Get busy with what God has put in your hand for the kingdom of God. Don't bury it away. Don't say, oh, you're, you're so harsh. I'll just, you know, I only got this. No. Put to work what God's put in your hands. And witness. Others need to hear about Jesus. Others need to hear about Jesus. When, when we read this, this text, Jesus tells us, when the door closes, it's closed. It's closed. It's like, it's like the ark. You know, I always think about the ark when 
Noah and his family went in there and God closed that door. And that was it. It was done. Watch, work, witness. And that is the whole purpose of end time theology and end time Bible prophecy and all these things. It's not like, oh yeah, this is so exciting. I'm going to sit around on the internet and read all this stuff. No, it's a call for us to get busy for the kingdom of God. Amen? Man, would you guys stand with me? Let's pray. Invite the worship team to come. Lord, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, because your word is, well, these words that you spoke, they're thousands of years old and yet they are applicable to our lives, God. And we ask Jesus this morning that your word would transform us. We ask, Lord, that your word would transform us. Father, if we've had attitudes in our hearts that say to you, that say to ourselves, oh, you're harsh. Lord, we repent of that this morning. We just repent of that this morning, Lord. We turn from those thoughts. God, we remind ourselves of what the scripture says, that you are faithful, that you are just, that you are good. And so, Lord, I, I, I just pray for each one of us this morning. If there's been a paralysis in our lives spiritually because we thought harshly about you, Lord, would you forgive that and heal that this morning? Lord, today we, we just ask for the fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. Can we just put our lamps before you, so to speak, our lives before you, the vessel of our lives? And Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit this morning, fresh and new. Put oil in our lamps, Lord, and keep us burning for you. And Lord, this morning we, we pray that with the things you've put into our hand to serve you, God, that we'd get busy about the work of the kingdom, that we'd witness, that we'd tell people about Jesus, that we would take our time, treasures, and our talents, Lord, and we'd invest it for, for you, Lord. God, I, I just pray for each person here that when you come, Lord, that when you come, Lord, that we would be found, Lord, that our church would be found, that we would be found as individuals to be those that are good and faithful in their service to you. And so, Lord, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.